It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Akshay Kumar, who is one of NGHS PGY3 internal medicine residents. He earned his medical degree from the Dow Medical College in Karachi, Pakistan. Dr. Kumar is interested in hospital inpatient medicine and plans on being a hospitalist after graduation. Hello, good afternoon, everyone. So uh, today's topic that we're going to discuss is delirium in hospitalized older adults. And this is one of the common challenge we face in hospitalized patients, especially in the older population. They suffer from delirium and it's complicated their hospital course, prolongs their length of stay and causes them to get discharged to acute care, post-acute care facilities and things like that. So we are going to discuss the measures we can take to prevent delirium while patient is hospitalized. And if you are seeing a delirium, how to recognize it in early stages and treat it to prevent those complications. So I do not have any disclosures to make regarding this presentation. So today's learning objectives are going to be identify what constitutes delirium in an institutionalized older adults, how to appropriately assess and manage delirium in acute setting as per the latest guidelines, and measures healthcare providers should take to prevent onset of delirium in hospitalized setting. So I just want to start with a clinical scenario. I wanted to keep, uh, I will read the scenario, keep it in back of your mind, and we'll go through uh, what could have been done to prevent this kind of a scenario as we approach towards the end of our presentation. So a 75-year-old man is admitted for a scheduled major abdominal surgery. He is functionally independent with mild forgetfulness. His intraoperative course is uneventful, but on post-operative day two, severe confusion and agitation develop. So what is going on? How would you manage this patient's care? And could this condition have been prevented? So just keep it in back of your mind and we'll discuss further towards the end. So to begin with delirium. So delirium has been described in medical literature for more than two millennia, but the condition is still not frequently recognized, evaluated, or managed appropriately. And delirium is also known as acute confusional state, altered mental status, and toxic metabolic encephalopathy. And delirium can also be thought of as an acute brain failure. Officially, the definition of delirium is described by Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, fifth edition, that is DSM-5. And the pathophysiologic mechanism of delirium are poorly understood, but proposed theories include neurotransmitter imbalance and neuroinflammation. So delirium is extremely common in hospitalized older adults and one third of the hospitalized patient population who are aged above 70 or older have delirium usually. Um, and the condition is present in half of, the, half of these patients on admission and develops during hospitalization in the other half. So our goal is to, we can't prevent the one who are already coming in with delirium, but our goal should be to prevent delirium who are hospitalized uh, to prevent them having developing a delirium in the hospitalized setting. So delirium is most common surgical complication among older adults with an incidence of 15 to 25% after major elective surgery 
and 50% after the high-risk procedures such as hip fracture repair and cardiac surgery. Although many clinicians think of delirium as being agitated, but in contrast, hyperactive delirium only represents 25% of the cases. Rest of the delirium, which is 75% of remaining delirium patients, are hypoactive and quiet delirium. So it's very important to recognize those set of patients as we often tend to miss those set of patients. So hypoactive delirium is associated with a poor prognosis, potentially because it's less frequently recognized. The features of delirium range from mild to extremely severe, uh, with a greater severity associated with worse outcomes. Um, risk factors for delirium have been classified into two subgroups, like predisposing factors and precipitating factors. Um, so first, we will talk about predisposing factor like older age, pre-existing dementia, functional disabilities, and a high burden of coexisting conditions are common predisposing factors. Male sex, poor vision and hearing, depressive symptoms, mild cognitive impairment, lab abnormalities, and alcohol abuse have also been associated with increased risk. Um, among precipitating factors, drugs, especially sedative hypnotics, uh, anticholinergic agents, surgery, anesthesia, inadequately managed pain, anemia, infection, any acute illness, and acute exacerbation of chronic illnesses are the most commonly reported that can precipitate delirium in a hospitalized patient. Um, the classical teaching was that delirium is transient, but however, the recent literature is showing that that's not always the truth. Some patients come in, get delirium, they have some little bit of a baseline dementia, and if they get, get delirium in the hospital, they can have a new baseline and can have kind of a go, go on and having the persistent delirium. Um, maybe it can last their, um, however, time they live for. So it's important to prevent delirium. Risk factors for persistence of delirium include advanced age, pre-existing dementia, multiple coexisting conditions, delirium severity, and the use of physical restraints which we see is a common practice, like when we are busy dealing with other patients, somebody is delirious and we put them on a restraint, so it actually harms the patient in the long run. So we should be careful about using physical restraints and should be using it if it's absolutely necessary and take them out as soon as uh, there is no need for physical restraints anymore. In hospital, uh, delirium is the potent risk factor for complication, a longer length of stay, and discharge to post-acute nursing facility. So diagnosing delirium, so we have a two subsets of patients, one in the critical care setting and other in general medical floor. So we use for both of them uh, confusion assessment method. For the ICU, we use CAM ICU. So we'll discuss both. So confusion assessment method is most use, useful bedside assessment tool for diagnosing delirium. And we'll discuss what uh, factors we look for when we are assessing uh, via the CAM method. Uh, dementia, depression, and acute psychiatric syndrome should all be considered in the differential diagnosis of delirium. And these syndrome often co-occur and patient may have one or more of those. Severe hypoactive and hyperactive, hyperactive delirium can be confused with depression and mania respectively. So uh, they should be carefully evaluated 
and diagnosis should be made appropriately. So the diagnostic criteria for delirium, uh, so DSM-5 criteria is uh, presence of delirium requires all criteria to be met per the DSM-5, which is disturbance in attention and awareness, disturbance develops acutely and tends to fluctuate in severity, at least one additional disturbance in cognition, disturbances are not better explained by pre-existing dementia and disturbance do not occur in context of severely reduced level of arousal or coma and evidence of an underlying organic cause or causes. While the confusion assessment method, the CAM method requires presence of either feature one and two or three and four in combination. So those features are like uh, feature one, acute change in mental status with fluctuating course, uh, inattention, disorganized thinking, and altered level of consciousness. Uh, these are the criteria to diagnose delirium. Once you have diagnosed delirium, how you will evaluate delirium? Uh, so newly diagnosed delirium can herald a life-threatening emergency and affected patients require a prompt and appropriate evaluation, including proper history taking, physical and neurological examination, uh, to rule out any stroke or any underlying intracranial pathology and the lab testing. So um, when you are dealing with delirium, these are the things you should typically look at like drugs, electrolyte disturbances, lack of drugs, like if you are not treating their pain adequately, they can go into delirium or they have been dependent on opioids you're not giving to them or sedative hypnotics you're not giving to them, they can go into delirium because of that. Any infection, reduced sensory input, like if they were used to wearing glasses or hearing aids and you're not having them while they're in the hospital, they can develop del delirium. Intracranial disorders, urinary or fecal disorders, myocardial and pulmonary disorders. Um, urinary incontinence and these are all kind of uh, risk factors for patients developing delirium and when you're evaluating you should always be careful and review all these things so first and foremost cause of delirium is medication so a thorough medication review is required for all patients with delirium and this should include consumption of alcohol and the use of non-prescription drugs and dietary supplements the physical exam should evaluate vital signs including oxygen saturation and the heart, lungs and the abdomen. Uh, neurologic examination should evaluate any new focal findings that suggest an intracranial cause like a stroke and you have to rule out the stroke before labeling it as patient is having delirium. Um, tests that are routinely required include a complete blood count, measure of electrolytes, blood urea nitrogen and a creatinine. A urine analysis, urine culture, LFTs, chest radiograph, and ECG are also often helpful. Additional lab tests and imaging should be selected on the basis of history and physical exam. Suppose if a patient has focal neurologic findings, you need to rule out the stroke, and in that case, the CT will be appropriate. Otherwise, just for delirium, it's not appropriate to order CT scan. So delirium in ICU setting is a uh, other special subset condition and it's delirium is much more prevalent in ICU 
patients who are on mechanical ventilation and its effect up to 83% of patients in the ICU who are on mechanical ventilation. And any new onset of confusion in adult patients in an ICU always warrants further evaluation. Uh, and ICU acquired delirium being one of the top differential, as you can see, um, like eight out of 10 patients in the ICU will suffer from delirium. So special tools have been validated for appropriately diagnosing delirium in an ICU setting. So how will you assess for ICU associated delirium is the same confusion assessment method, uh, which is specialized for the ICU. So it's called CAM ICU and we'll be discussing what it, what it compromises. And the other is the intensive care delirium screening checklist. These are both extensively validated and used for delirium diagnosis and evaluation of delirium over time. And these both tools are simple to uh, implement and allow non-psychiatric ICU personnel to diagnose the complication rapidly and reliably and can be adopted even when the patient is unable to speak due to intubation. So in a CAM ICU approach, so it's a two-way two approach. In the first one, you assess the level of consciousness and arousal uh, through a standardized sedation scale such as Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, uh, commonly called ROS. Uh, it's a 10-point scale ranging from plus four to negative five, where a ROS value of zero indicates a calm and alert patient. And ROS scores of negative four and negative five are indicative of coma and cannot be further assessed for delirium. All other individuals like moderately sedated or ROS score of negative three or higher should also be evaluated through second step, which assesses patient for four characteristic of delirium as discussed earlier for CAM method. So the CAM method, as we discussed, includes uh, assessment of acute onset of altered mental status, inattention, disorganized thinking, or altered level of consciousness. Three out of four features are required for diagnosis of delirium, in contrast to in regular uh, patients on the medical floor where just two of the features are required. Here you have to have a three features out of four. And then uh, the other approach is um, ICDSC approach. And utilizing this approach, the level of consciousness is first evaluated on a five-point scale, like from A to E, that ranges from unresponsive being A to exaggerated response E. Patients who are scored in categories A, which is no response, or B, which is response to intense and repeated stimulation are not further assessed. And the patients who have um, level C to E level of consciousness are checked for information collected during the previous 24 hours and investigating eight items, which we'll be discussing shortly with a total score of zero to eight. A score of four or greater is considered diagnostic for delirium. So these are the factors in intensive care delirium screening checklist we are using to score patients from zero to eight. Um, and the, if the score is four or above, definitely patient is delirium. The higher the score doesn't mean the patient has a, it doesn't correlate with the severity of uh, uh, delirium. It's just above four is delirium, that's it. 
So management of delirium, once you have diagnosed and evaluated the causes of delirium is uh, well integrated care by the physician, nurses and other providers and even family members helps to prevent complication and poor outcomes often seen in delirium. Uh, medications are most common modifiable contributors, common precipitating medications and poten uh, potential are uh, benzos, opioid analgesics, um, non-benzo sedative hypnotics like uh, people are, a lot of people are on Ambien nowadays for sleep, so that can contribute to delirium. Antihistamine, especially first generation uh, antihistamine which has anticholinergic effects. Use of alcohol, uh, anticonvulsants, uh, anticholinergics itself, tricyclic antidepressants, antihistamine, anti-Parkinson drugs, antipsychotic, and barbiturates can all cause delirium. Um, environmental factors are also important in delirium management. The hospital ward should be well lit during the day and dark and quiet at night. Interventions to improve orientation and reduce the sensory deprivation include clocks, calendars, and encouragement of patients to wear glasses and hearing aids if they are used to wearing those in their home setting. And family members should be encouraged to visit and provide orientation and reassurance to patients. Monitoring of bowel and bladder output, preferably without urinary catheters unless required for treating urinary retention. The constipation can be prevented by judicious use of laxatives and prophylaxis is essential in those with standing order for opioid analgesics. And getting the patient out of the bed to chair, preferably walking, can prevent atelectasis, deconditioning, pressure ulcers, as well as helps with prevention of de uh, delirium. And some patients with delirium may require aspiration precautions and monitoring too if they develop delirium. So first and foremost um, method of kind of managing delirium is non-pharmacologic interventions or the cornerstone for managing behavioral problems in delirium. Nurses should be trained in de-escalation techniques and when necessary, sitters can be employed to ensure patient safety rather than putting them on restraints or using um, antipsychotics to treat their delirium. Physical restraints which staff often use to reduce the risk of patient self-harm are actually associated with increased injury. So in the ICU setting, restraints may be required to prevent removal of endotracheal tubes, intraarterial devices, and uh, central venous catheters or lines. If the restraints are must and they are applied, they should be carefully monitored to reduce the risk of patient injury and discontinued as soon as they are no longer indicated. That is why we have to keep on renewing it every 24 hours. The purpose is to just make sure that they don't need it. But a lot of us, we usually just renew it as per the nursing discretion. So we have to go and assess the patient and make sure that if they need it or they don't need it. Uh, pharmacologic treatment may be required for distressing perceptual disturbance or delusional thoughts when verbal reassurance is not successful or for behavior that is dangerous to patient and others. And benzos should be reserved for specific conditions like uh, if delirium is associated with alcohol or benzos withdrawal, then those are appropriate to use benzos. Otherwise, 
in all other conditions, it's almost always wrong to use benzos to kind of a calm patient down who is delirious. Uh, for the other cases of delirium, antipsychotic agents have a more favorable risk-benefit ratio as compared to benzos. Um, however, all such use in the USA is off-label use and there are no any FDA-approved medications to kind of a help with a delirious patient. Haloperidol or the commonly goes with the name Haldol is the least sedating but has the greatest risk of extrapyramidal symptoms so you definitely don't want to use it on a patient who has a Parkinson. Whereas quetiapine commonly goes by the name Seroquel is most, mostly most sedating and has the least extrapyramidal effects. And the patients with prolonged delirium may need continual scheduled dosing like once, twice or thrice a day uh, as with physical restraints because these are not FDA approved and are used for short-term measures, short-term acute measures. These drugs should be stopped as soon as possible. So at the first place, how you can prevent patients from developing delirium? So frequent reorientation uh, and presence of family members a non-pharmacologic sleep control, getting the patient out of the bed and walking, encouraging the use of eyeglasses and hearing aids, as well as encouraging fluid intake are the measures to prevent from then going into delirium at first place. Another effective non-pharmacologic approach for delirium prevention is proactive geriatric consultation in surgical patient at high risk for delirium. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, inpatient geriatrics consultation on a lot of our patients. Uh, so that is a thing that can be changed which will prevent delirium in uh, older adults, especially who are post-surgical patients. And a structured protocol is used to formulate daily recommendations, for example, using round-the-clock Tylenol and local pain management to reduce opioid use and discontinuing standing orders for sleeping pills. Uh, geriatrics orthopedic services have been widely adopted uh, for patients with hip fracture to reduce incidence of delirium. Um, in studies done so far, there is no any clear evidence that use of melatonin or melatonin agonist reduces the incidence of delirium as compared with placebo. So coming back to our clinical scenario, as we discussed, um, a 75-year-old man is admitted for scheduled major abdominal surgery. He is functionally independent with mild forgetfulness. His intraoperative course is uneventful, but on post-operative day two, severe confusion and agitation developed. What is going on? How would you manage this patient's care? Could his condition have been prevented? So based on uh, what we just discussed, so this patient is suffering from severe hyperactive post-operative delirium. And after confirmation of the diagnosis, the next steps should be conducting a careful evaluation for reversible causes and addressing as many of these as possible. Agitation should be managed with non-pharmacologic strategies first as just discussed. Physical restraints should be avoided. Antipsychotic agents should be reserved for unremitting symptoms that threaten the patient's safety and if required, held all with initial dose of 0.25 mg, uh, Zaprexa 2.5 mg, Seroquel 12.5 mg would be reasonable first choices. 
and depending on the amount of sedation desired. Um, had this patient's mild forgetfulness been recognized preoperatively, he could have been identified as being high risk for delirium and proactive strategies could have been implemented to reduce the risk of patient going into delirium. So the next slide will do a quiz. Um, so 85 year old man is evaluated in the hospital after surgical fixation of a broken hip. He reports a mild level of pain. He did not bring his glasses or hearing aids to hospital. And he has been making progress with physical therapy. And when his pain is controlled, he will be transferred to inpatient rehab facility. His history includes high frequency hearing loss, macular degeneration, and hypertension. Medications are lisinopril and chlorothalidone. On physical exam, vital signs and other findings are normal. Uh, which of the following is most appropriate measure to prevent delirium in this patient? Uh, so who would like to answer? Uh, I'll hand you the microphone. Oh, here we go. E, because um, he will need his glasses and hearing aids to be able to be oriented to whatever is happening around him. Correct, yeah. So as discussed that uh, sense, uh, sensory input deprivation can lead to delirium and to prevent this, if they are used to hearing, wearing the eyeglasses or hearing aids in their home setting or wherever they're coming from, uh, we should kind of provide it to them when they're in the hospital setting. So the correct answer is E, the patient's glasses and hearing aids should be provided to him to prevent delirium and identifying and correcting the sensory impairments, including providing patients with their visual and hearing aids, is effective in prevention of delirium. So second question, 78-year-old um, woman is hospitalized for pneumonia. Appropriate antibiotics were initiated and a urinary catheter was placed. The patient has a history of dementia and her only other medication is donipezil. On physical exam, uh, temperature is 100.1 Fahrenheit. Um, other vitals are stable. The patients appear stable, but is disoriented. Crackles are present in the left lower posterior lung field. Neurologic examination reveals cognitive impairment without inattention or evidence of focal neurologic deficits. Uh, which of the following is most appropriate next step to prevent delirium in this patient? What did you say? Yeah. Who said it? Mm, I believe the urinary catheter removal. Mm -hmm. And why is that so? Because UTI in a hospitalized patient is one of the most common causes of delirium in elderly. So if we can prevent that, then... Right, yeah. That is one of the reasons as well. Uh, urinary catheters can predispose patient to UTI. But the other thing is that any external device attached to a patient can cause them to go into delirium. Uh, so the most appropriate next step to prevent delirium in this patient is urinary catheter removal. And non-pharmacologic measures that res reduce the risk of delirium in patients include removal of theaters such as bladder catheters, restraints, 
cognitive reorientation. Even the patients who have a central line, as soon as it's not needed, it should be pulled out because it risks patients going into delirium. Uh, sleep enhancement, early mobility, and adaptations for visual and hearing impairment, nutrition and fluid replacement, pain management, appropriate medication use and adequate oxygenation, prevention of constipation, and family or cigarette bedsides are all the measures taken to prevent delirium in hospitalized patients. The use of antipsychotic medication in elderly patients with dementia is associated with an increased risk of death, stroke, and MI. So just be careful and, and don't load patient with antipsychotic unless absolutely necessary. These are the references for my presentation. Uh, and I would like to uh, thank my mentors and reviewers, Dr. Carl, Dr. Newcomb, and Dr. Jacob. And thank you all for attending. Uh, if you have all have any question, I will open platform to you. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Kumar. If you're viewing online and you have a question or a comment, you can enter it in the Q&A chat. And then in the room, I'll hand you the microphone. Hey, Dr. Kumar, thanks for your presentation. Question for you. You mentioned the possibility of doing early geriatric inpatient consultations to help with prevention of delirium. Have you come across any evidence that actually helps? Um, so I was just reviewing the articles and in the big academic settings where they have inpatient geriatric con services, they usually are able to kind of uh, identify the drugs like mostly the patients who have a geriatric consultation are the surgical patients undergoing major surgery like hip replacement or hip fracture surgery. So those patients benefit from geriatric consultation. They are able to identify the medications and they reduce the dose and they kind of uh, post-surgically, they, they come up with a plan for pain management and things like that that are not associated with delirium. So yeah, in literature, it was found that big academic centers who had an inpatient geriatric consultation did have a better outcome compared to the hospitals where it was not performed. Thank you. We have one down here. Oh yeah, of course. Thanks, Akshay. Great presentation. What's the role of VR in preventing delirium? Uh, so I know it's kind of undergoing investigation and it's in the, uh, like one of our um, senior who's graduated now was doing that project. I don't know whether he was able to analyze the data post implementation of the VR or not, uh, but I didn't come across much literature because it's, in, it's still in the early stages of development. Uh, but I think it's definitely if we are reorienting them with the help of VR, simulating their home environment, it, it's, it will be definitely, definitely helpful to prevent delirium in those settings. And are we using the VR? Uh, I think when uh, Dr. Chu was here, he was implementing it in the ICU, but I'm, I have not been in the ICU recently, so I'm not sure. Uh, maybe somebody who has been into the ICU recently can shed light on it. Okay. Yes, he did a presentation a few months ago about that, I remember. We have a question over here. Thank you. Um, great presentation. 
Um, so my question is, um, say someone has delirium in, on the floor. Um, you said the first line is non-pharmacologic therapy. So as far as your research um, or what you found, what's the best, non the first thing to do non-pharmacologically? Is it a sitter or is it just reorientation by the nurse? Uh, so the first and foremost thing is to identify the cause of delirium, like why the patient is delirious and uh, identify and fixing that cause. After that, uh, if the patient safety is patient safety and the staff safety is at risk, then employing a bedside sitter is the second best option. Uh, otherwise, just making sure that we are providing them frequent reorientation, having family member at the bedside uh, also helps and removing any unnecessary devices or catheters is also helpful. All right. Thank you, Dr. Kumar. Thank you.